0: Hello, I'm Razia Iqbal. Welcome to NewsHour from the BBC World Service. It comes to you live from our studios in central London. Our top story today takes us to Paris. In normal times, President Trump's two-day trip to meet his French counterpart, Emmanuel Macron, would be a straightforward international trip. However, the Russian election meddling drama developing at home suggests we are not in normal times. Mr Trump is bound to be asked about the latest revelation stateside that his eldest son and namesake met a Russian lawyer during the campaign with a view to getting information that might have damaged Hillary Clinton. So a trip abroad offers the US president an opportunity to do a couple of things. Show his domestic audience that he's up to the job of being a president something he personally has never doubted, but also forge a strong relationship with an increasingly influential world leader. For Mr Macron, it's a chance to carve out a profile for himself as the dominant European leader. I've been speaking to an American in Paris, former US diplomat and State Department official William Jordan, and first Hervé Beville, a new and young MP with President Macron's La République en marche. What is Mr Macron trying to get from this meeting?
1: It's important to, to remind us that the, the, the two presidents have met several times recently at the NATO summit, G70, G20, and what they're they're trying to do. And it's another great occasion to discuss issues with the United States and to share, like of course, our common interests, common policies, for example, inter- international security and the fight against terrorism, and also try to convince uh, our partner, the United States of America, that. That can still change a decision about, for example, the, uh, the the Paris Agreement, and telling that for us and for all the G uh, the other G19 countries, uh, this agreement is irreversible. So it's like two sides: one like continue pursue and share our common interests and policies on international international security, and the other one try to, to continue to convince our partner that they can still change their decision on, on, on issue on climate change. Well,
0: William Jordan, to, to what extent do you think uh, President Trump might be, even be open to being persuaded? Because for him, you could argue that this is a a, a welcome respite from his troubles back home.
2: I agree uh, largely with that latter assertion in the sense that uh, I think that for Donald Trump, it's not only a, a respite, as many of his other Foreign trips have been uh, from the hurly burly in Washington these days, especially over as everybody continues to be so obsessed with the latest revelations about Russia. Uh, but I also think that for Donald Trump, what he's looking for here is a continued uh, ego satisfying uh, sense that uh, he's taken seriously in the world and that, um, you know, despite what a lot of his detractors say that he has partners. He has partners that not only uh, will deal with him, but who want him to be by their sides in public settings. And so I think that there's a lot of symbolism in this. Uh, I doubt that there's going to be very much uh, more beyond, as Hervé was just saying, uh, substantive discussion, simply because these these men have been meeting regularly uh, in recent weeks. And so I don't think they have much more to say.
0: Uh, Hervé Berville, given that they have met and there's been quite a lot of comment on social media about uh, you know, whether it was an arm wrestle, whether it was a handshake when they, when they first met, I wonder what you make of the chemistry between the two men now. I mean, they are quite different um, in many ways. Mr Trump is 71. He's an anti-globalist elected on a pledge to put America first. Emmanuel Macron believes in a kind of cosmopolitan globalism and and he's a, a an ardent pro-European. What do you make of those really quite big differences
1: between them? The shake at the end, I think it was not a big issue, except maybe for the media. And this is a, a past uh, like event. And on you, you don't side, think? No. Let on, me on just pick side. you up
0: on that. You, you don't think that these yeah. are kind of two alpha males who are really kind of sizing each other up still?
1: Yeah, of course, it's like a relationship. So what we want. On our side, and and President Emmanuel Macron is really clear on, on this. He wants to talk with everybody. And the the relationship between the two, of course, is between two presidents of two great countries, and it's it has to be very open, direct, and, and constructive, which is really important for us. So these visits, these two days is another great occasion to discuss all the issues that we share, because we, we need to remind us and remind the public but that, that France and the United States share a long history. And that is why he has been invited in Paris, because it's to celebrate also the year that the, the state decided to go to war, And we're going to have like a, a great celebration with French troops, with US troops, and remind us that we shared a long history. This visit and, and this meeting... Of course we're not going to solve all the issues in today's but we we need to continue this discussion we need to talk about climate change uh, issue we need to talk about syria about iraq about like the Sahel region about development corporations so the more the better uh, for us so um, let's continue the discussion and i'm sure we're going to have like a, a really direct and constructive like a uh, discussion
0: Uh, William Jordan, uh, Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, has had a a routine meeting with uh, President Macron. Do you see this meeting between uh, the President of France and the President of the United States as a way in which Emmanuel Macron might be challenging Germany's leadership of Europe? Do you think he's seeing himself as someone who can carve out a a much stronger place for France in in international politics?
2: Yes, I do. And, And in fact, I would pick up on your previous question to Hervé and say that I think that what Macron is doing very cleverly here is he's playing on this sort of complementary aspect of the, uh, uh, the personality dynamic between Trump and Macron inasmuch as much as Trump has a very frosty relationship with Angela Merkel. And while these two men, uh, Macron and Trump, come across as very confident individuals, uh, I think that Trump is always beset by severe insecurities that probably have a lot to do with everything going back to his youth in terms of being a businessman in a very competitive uh, world in New York. And so, hence, he's constantly needing both to project this, this, this supreme confidence while at the same time uh, attacking people who uh, attack him, or he feels are attacking him, as a demonstration of his insecurity. Macron, I think, uh, as opposed to Merkel, understands this, and therefore is doing everything that he can to make clear that, okay, even though I'm younger than you, in a lot of ways we're very similar, and I'm not going to come jumping all over you as far as, uh, you know, putting you in a corner and and making you feel threatened. Whereas I think that the problem with the, uh, with the Merkel-Trump dynamic is that Angela Merkel, true to her nature, is trying to make very clear to Trump that He's stepping out of bounds on a regular basis, and she feels as though she needs to call him to account for that.
0: That was William Jordan, former U.S. diplomat. And I was also speaking to Hervé Beville, who is a new and young MP with President Macron's uh, En Marche party. Time now for the next report in our special series on China's Belt and Road Initiative from our China editor. The new Silk Road is an immense programme of construction across three continents, promising almost a trillion dollars in lending. And it's being seen as China's attempt to steal a march on the US to promote an alternative world order. Today, Carrie Gracie, our China editor, who's travelling 7,000 miles along the new rail route from China to the UK, finds herself in Europe.
3: I can see carrots, I can see courgettes, I can see garlic. What are you making, Yugo?
4: I'm
5: not sure either.
3: (laughs) (laughs) It's a proper Chinese vegetable knife, proper cleaver.
2: Yeah, we got from China. In in Poland, you cannot buy such kind of knife.
3: It's not just you boys' knives that come from China, it's his rice and his housemates too.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they tease
3: him about his hapless hunt for a wife. And as he makes dinner, he admits Southeast Poland is a hard sell to girls back home.
5: Chinese girls don't have any idea about Ebola.
3: <laughs> so just in case there's anyone marriageable listening, let's fill them in. Stolova volla is an old steel town and finding a wife is not Yubo's only problem here. Six years ago, his company bought a struggling factory which once built army tanks and now makes bulldozers and diggers. Yubo's job is to turn it around.
5: The future is quite bright. However, we really need the last kick to get the goal.
3: I'm witnessing what I can only describe as a kind of bulldozer assembly ballet. I'm in a building three football fields long, and running up and down the middle of this giant building is the actual assembly line. It doesn't take long to discover that despite Yubo's efforts and his optimism, it takes this factory four days to make a digger that its sister factory back in China turns out in seven minutes. Yubor desperately needs the new Silk Road to bring him buyers.
5: At this moment, uh, the orders are not uh, so big, sometimes just two, three pieces. And we hope that uh, thanks to improvement of this uh, initiative, uh, we can get uh, more, bigger orders.
3: But he may have to wait some time, because Europe is not sure about the new Silk Road. European delegates did join the polite applause at the Beijing summit when President Xi set out his vision.
5: We will not resort to outdated geopolitical manoeuvring. Instead, we hope to achieve a new model of win-win cooperation.
3: But European governments fear that the money China promises will only be for Chinese construction projects and Chinese kit, and that fine talk about free trade is no more than talk, while Chinese markets are closed to many European goods and services. Uh Vysvav Rutovsky is a farmer with 99 cows to milk. He's hoping a China hungry for healthy dairy might help him expand.
4: China is a very big and interesting market for us, and we want to try it. It's like a promised land.
3: Many Chinese would think Wierswaw's already in the promised land, showing me around his patchwork of green fields set amid lakes and forests. China's short of farmland and suffers frequent food scares, with a milk scandal fresh in public memory. In Poland's neighbors, Ukraine and Belarus, Chinese companies are buying land and setting up big dairy herds. <laughs> With the cows all milked and fed, we sit down with the family to coffee and homemade cheesecake. Vieslav's son, Raffu, tells me he's pushing their dairy cooperative to try selling cheese and yoghurt in China. <laughs> say I'm a Chinese investor and I come and knock on your door and I say, I've got a lot of money, and I want to buy your
2: farm. What do you say? No thanks. I wouldn't sell it to anybody. It is my father and grandfather's land, and I want to have my touch on this farm. I don't want to sell it and have only money.
3: But for China, Europe's now a place to buy and to build, and Beijing's learning fast how to divide and rule. Without a united front to fight their corner, European farmers will struggle to get their milk onto the Chinese breakfast table.
0: Carrie Gracie, our China editor, reporting. Do get in touch if you're looking for a new life and love and want to marry Yu Bo, who can't find a wife in southwest Poland. This is New South. Coming up, as Britain's High Court meets again to decide the fate of a terminally ill baby whose parents want him to have an experimental treatment against the advice of his doctors here, we hear from an American father whose son faced a similar situation.
1: We were totally devastated We had a healthy, normal baby. And then all of a sudden, 20 months later, a doctor is telling us that he's going to die in two months. But I told her, doctor, I could assure you that we're not taking our baby home to die.
0: Stay with us for that report. Uh, The BBC News headlines this hour. A military court in Moscow has given long prison sentences to five Chechen men found guilty of murdering the opposition politician Boris Nemtsov. And the latest video to emerge from the Iraqi city of Mosul shows what appear to be Iraqi soldiers throwing a man suspected of having IS links over a cliff. More on that later in the programme. This is Razia Iqbal with NewsHour, coming to you live from the BBC in London. Let's talk about blue whales now. They are the biggest animal ever to have lived on our planet – Instead of imparting random facts, though, I should tell you that we're talking about such creatures because the Natural History Museum here in London, one of the city's top tourist destinations, is changing the animal visitors will see in the museum's grand entrance hall. For decades, it's been Dippy, the Diplodocus, the giant resin cast of a dinosaur skeleton. Dippy has been moved and replaced by Hope, the name being given to the skeleton of a blue whale. I've been speaking to Kathleen Jamie, a poet and author of a book called Sightlines, in which she writes about a collection of whale skeletons at a museum in Norway. What's the significance of the whale?
6: Aside from the obvious, that the, the the largest living thing on the planet, I think the whales, the great whales, all of them, have been the place where we human beings have played out our relationship with the natural world. And we have moved, I hope we are still moving, away from the idea of seeing these creatures as a mere resource, you know, to be, to be caught and slaughtered for our needs and realising they have an existence of their own and it's a remarkable thing and we should... Revere is too strong a word perhaps, but we should certainly acknowledge their, their right to exist and the magnificence of them. And if that's what they're doing, then, then good for them.
0: It's true, isn't it, that the blue whale has, in a sense, been to the brink of extinction and back. I mean, you refer to it in terms of it being used as a resource. Mm -hmm.
6: Well, yes, but then we discovered oil, you know, which has its own myriad problems, as we now know. In in a sense, as I understand it, oil saved whales because we didn't need whale oil to to fuel our lamps and, you know, grease our machines. It seems to be an unsolvable mess, our, our desire for energy, doesn't it? But at least we're backing off from using whales at the minute
0: you you resisted using the word reverence with with regard to the blue whale but as an animal it's clearly captured your imagination why has it been so particularly
6: it has to capture my imagination because I've never seen one you have never seen one in in the wild they're mysterious mysterious because they live their lives below the oceans and if we do catch a glimpse of one in the wild it is a mere spout or a, or a thin line of its back it's a strange fate for a creature to be more familiar to us as as a skeleton than it is as a a real creature although they are real and they are out there and even as we speak at this moment there will be blue whales doing whatever they do out in the oceans which is a lovely thought if you're on the bus or on the tube you think they're out there somewhere
0: it's certainly true that it's the skeleton of a whale. It's a real whale. Mm-hmm. It's not a cast uh, that's going to hang in the, in the Great Hall at the Natural History Museum. What do you think a skeleton can tell us then about the animal?
6: Well, it's interesting, isn't it? It's, it's, a skeleton is not the animal. A skeleton is obviously part of the animal, but it sort of stands as a, a sign of what the animal could be to be a pile of bones although beautifully arranged in a building in a city gives us scant idea of what a blue whale actually is being alive in the ocean in that context in its habitat in its family group you know we can only wonder at it if it gives us a source of wonder well and good i think i think there's a lot to be said for wonder but what it tells us about being a whale is going to be limited
0: and I suppose, presumably as a poet, you would hope that it would prompt people to imagine as you do.
6: Oh yes, anything that anything that allows us to imagine or to think out of our own selves has got to be good for the whales and good for us.
0: You've been in the rather unusual position of having sat inside the skeleton <laughs> of a blue whale. Tell us what that was like.
6: It is unusual. The Natural History Museum in Bergen in Norway has a, a huge collection of whale skeletons. They were a great whaling nation, of course, and most of the skeletons came from the, their whaling exploits. But they, they do have blue whale skeleton, which is suspended from the ceiling. And I happened to be there when they were cleaning these skeletons and there was scaffolding, so I was allowed to go up the scaffolding and enter into the, the body of the whale, which was, as you say, a very unusual experience. It was like being in a strange sort of taxi. It was that sort of size. Four <laughs> of us could sit comfortably in this odd little bone room, you know.
0: I wonder if you would be kind enough just to to read us something from your book about the blue whale. I could read you
6: a section about walking underneath the skeleton, so to get a, a sense of the length of it. Shall I do that?
0: Yeah, lovely, thank you. Okay.
6: Of course the blue whale was largest of all. I decided to walk under its full length and count my steps. First I walked under the smooth horizontal arch of the jaw and its palate where the baleen had once hung, sheets of aged browned bone. Then came the solid complications of the skull. Now under the barrel of the rib cage, the ribs curving down, enclosing and protecting nothing, nothing but air. I kept walking, counting. As I passed the basking shark on the other side, I surreptitiously touched its cold skin, rough as sandpaper. I passed a dolphin, small and lithe, and making for the door. Still, the blue whale went on overhead. Above the basking shark hung a huge sunfish, an eerie-looking object hanging from a wire, more like a black moon with an eye. Still, I walked on, counting until the spine ended. Fifty-seven paces. Less an animal, more a narrative, the ancient mariner.
0: Thank you so much. That was completely beautiful. Thank Thank you. you. Poet Kathleen Jamie. One of the biggest names in professional gambling is hoping today to persuade the UK's Supreme Court to make a decision on his winnings of $12.5 million. It's money that the American Phil Ivey won at Crockford's Casino in London back in 2012, playing the card game Baccarat. However, the casino refused to pay because they say he cheated, a charge Ivey denies. It's all to do with an arcane process called edge sorting, spotting minute imperfections in the design printed during manufacture on the backs of cards themselves. Robbie Straczynski is a poker pundit and owner of cardplayerlifestyle.com. He
7: explains. No deck of cards is always uh, necessarily perfect. So the manufacturer may have produced a deck of cards that is slightly off in terms of the design on the back of the cart. And if you have eagle eyes and can spot something like that, and especially in a game like Baccarat, uh, you can sort of turn the game to your advantage because you'll be able to identify what would the next card off of the deck be. That's basically it in a nutshell.
0: So, it is just a question of luck of encountering a pack of cards that has this discrepancies. Is that right?
7: Generally speaking, yes. however, uh, a high roller is someone who the casinos would cater to pretty much their every demand. Baccarat is a game uh, generally played by people who are very, very superstitious, and you know the casino obviously believes the math is in their favor, uh, so they would go ahead and acquiesce to pretty much any demand. Uh, that a high roller would make. Pretty much every demand uh, or, or request that Mr. Ivy had had, casinos said, sure, no problem.
0: Because he is seen very much as a high roller. Just give us a sense oh. of his profile in the world of professional oh, poker certainly. playing.
7: He is one of the top 10 all-time money earners in the game of poker, basically will be inducted this year into the Poker Hall of Fame over $20 million in tournament winnings, countless many, many millions more in cash games as well. Uh, He is thought of to be one of, if not the best player in the game. Yeah, he's the baller lifestyle, travels around the world, not only playing poker, but also, you know, living it up and gambling, that sort of thing as well.
0: And in your view, is any of this the advantage that edge sorting might give a player, a high roller player, is that regarded as cheating?
7: I don't believe so. Mr. Ivy walked into their house and played by their rules. At any given point in time, they could have said, we stop. At any given point in time, they could say, no, we're not going to give you this deck of cards. No, you must play alone. But he went in, played by their rules, won money. He walked out with a lot of money. And now they say, oh, wait a minute, we want our money back because, and they're going to go ahead and make up a reason, but he didn't do anything wrong.
0: That was poker pundit Robbie Straczynski. You're listening to NewsHour. You're listening to a podcast edition of NewsHour, available twice each day, straight after the live edition of the programme. And if you're enjoying this, then why not take a look at other podcasts from the BBC World Service? The documentary brings to life stories and investigations from across the globe. Or witness remarkable first-hand accounts from important moments in history. Or try The Food Chain, our podcast for foodies, farmers and anyone who cares about what they eat and where it comes from. Coming up next, we'll get the latest on the case of uh, baby Charlie Gard, who is terminally ill. First, though, more than 10,000 migrants are still being held in refugee camps on Greek islands, no longer able to travel on to Europe. Many are appealing against a decision to return them to Turkey as part of the European Union's migration plan to stop illegal boat crossings. But on one little-known island... Tilos, officials have been actively trying to attract refugees with offers of accommodation and potential residency for Syrian families who are prepared to work and integrate. Gavin Lee reports.
8: Tilos Island Refugee Centre, under the mountains close to the beach. There's a group of Syrian children sitting around listening to 11-year-old Iham from Damascus play guitar singing a song he's heard in his Greek class. Blow, wind, blow, he sings, take us to distant places. He's among 45 Syrian refugees here, mainly families who've been selected from camps in Greece, people who are keen to work and integrate. In exchange, they're given a place to stay and residency. It's a small but strong show of faith for a tiny island with a population of 800 close to the Turkish coast, a place where word is there are ten goats to every local... It's gone midnight, and the only business still running in the main town of Lavadia is the Tilos Bakery. Kusey al-Damad is the town's new baker, grafting away, making bread. He used to fit air conditioning units in the Syrian city of Dara. When he fled with his family, his aim was Germany. He'd never heard of Tilos. None of the refugees had.
0: I searched uh, uh, Tilos and uh, Google. Map. I... You had to Google it? Yes, uh, but when I arrived here, I think all my life, Change. Uh, i learning how to make bread, how to make sweet.
8: I am very happy for help uh, people here. It's now 10 o'clock in the morning in the port of Lavadia. The beachside bars and cafes are opening up. There are tourists swimming and sunbathing, some being served by the new Syrian bar assistant Ahmed on the terrace of Hotel Elena. Inside, two other Syrians are working as housekeepers. One of them is Maha Baraka. Uh,
2: excuse me, clean room.
8: She spoke no English when she arrived in February. After intense English and Greek lessons, she is now almost fluent.
0: My husband, Rahman, has uh, now a name King Falafel.
8: They call him the King of Falafel?
0: Yes, and uh, I hope for him has a restaurant here and the name restaurant King Falafel. So
8: you might set up the first Syrian-Greek restaurant here on Telos yes. and call it the King Falafel yes. Restaurant. That's mm-hmm. your dream?
0: Yes, that's
6: my dream.
8: A group of tourists arrive, guided by Andreas Ladopoulos. No, 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 one, one moment. He says he's worried about what's happening on the island. We,
1: we are friendly with them, we want them. Why not? They're people, they're human beings. But we are just... 800, we can say on the papers, OK... So you will realise that one day we'll become a small Syria town.
8: So it's, it's about, for you, it's, it's the preservation of cultural identity. Yes.
0: That report uh, from the Greek island of Tilos was by Gavin Lee. You're listening to NewsHour from the BBC. I'm Razia Iqbal. Well, as we've been hearing while we've been on air, China's most famous political prisoner and the country's only Nobel laureate, uh, Liu Shibao, has died aged 61. Uh, Let's speak uh, first to our China editor, Carrie Gracie. Um, Carrie, just tell us first of all about the circumstances of his very acute illness, which has, of course, led to his death because there was real controversy around him not being allowed to leave China.
3: Yes, well, um, his illness was only um, released to the world, and we only knew about it a couple of weeks ago, when he was officially given medical parole. He was moved from prison uh, to a hospital, still under very uh, heavy guard and no access to foreign media, no access to many of his friends. Um, we were told it was advanced liver cancer, and, of course, uh, that quickly has proved very, very serious and, and, and very swift decline because in those last two weeks pictures have emerged of Mr Liu looking extremely gaunt and then there's been this unseemly controversy over whether he would or wouldn't be allowed to leave China, whether he would or wouldn't get his dying wish to get treatment abroad and to get his wife and his brother-in-law abroad and of course as we now know in the last few minutes he has uh, died without uh, that dying wish being granted.
0: Uh, And Carrie fill us in on the background to to this uh, very famous Chinese dissident. He won the Nobel Prize while he was in jail. He did. I mean, this is somebody who...
3: Um, I think it's very important to remember. Uh, had a gilded life until the 1980s. He was a gifted intellectual. He had a comfortable and promising career as an academic uh, in Beijing. Um, he was famous, celebrated, and he decided to go the fork in the way in 1989 after the massacre that followed the Tiananmen Square democracy movements. He was a very active figure during those democracy protests, and then after the massacre, of course, many people of his generation and many of those of subsequent generations took the view that after that bloodshed, it was just too dangerous to ask for the overthrow of the one party state. It was just too dangerous to campaign for more political freedom in China. Uh, They put their efforts into uh, their careers. They looked after their lives and their liberty. And um, Liu Xiaobo obviously did the other thing. He took the other fork in the road and consistently ever since 1989, he bravely went on defiantly challenging one party rule in China. And as you say, Razia, um, by the time he won his Nobel Peace Prize in 2010, he was already serving an 11 year sentence for subversion.
0: And, and Carrie, the reaction from the outside world when his illness and the seriousness of his illness came, came to light was very swift, many people expressing uh, outrage, but also appealing to the Chinese authorities to allow him international, you know, governments around the world appealing to the Chinese authorities. Will that have made any impression on them?
3: Uh, I think the short answer is uh, no. I mean, obviously, in private, they're very embarrassed. Um, they feel humiliated. Uh, they find it very difficult to deal with this situation. Uh, they know that um, many people don't trust their information. There was a very uh, great deal of concern that uh, Mr Liu's liver cancer had been neglected. His health had been neglected, possibly, until it was too late for treatment. And they wanted to counteract that impression or that suspicion and hence- they allowed two foreign doctors to visit his hospital bed in northeast um, China. But at the same time, you have to remember that Xi Jinping, China's current president, is a very robust, strongman style of leader. And he uh, is very dismissive of human rights pressure from the outside world. And while there have indeed been pleas from the European Union, from the United States State Department and from other governments that Mr Liu should have been allowed the freedom to choose his care in the last... Uh, days and weeks of his life, that that didn't come publicly from top world leaders. They all met Xi Jinping in Hamburg just last weekend at the G20 summit, and you did not see loud public appeals from um, President Trump or from Chancellor Merkel or from Prime Minister Theresa May. None of these figures came out and publicly put pressure on Xi Jinping to actually release Liu Xiaobo, and I think that's very different from 20 years ago, uh, when we saw a, a less strong China in the world and a less confident China in the world actually responding to this kind of human rights pressure and letting some of its dissidents travel abroad under medical parole.
0: Carrie Gracie, our China editor, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Let's speak now to Jianli Yang, a a friend and fellow dissident who had been jailed for five years but is now living in Washington and joins us from there now. Uh, We are sorry for your loss. I I wonder if we could just get your reaction to uh, the uh, unwillingness of the Chinese authorities to allow your friend to leave China.
9: You know, it's uh, really, really devastating news that we heard this morning, that uh, our dear friend, the democracy leader Liu Xiaobo, passed away. Before that, in about two weeks, we have been trying, have tried to make our best effort to get him out of China, to receive medical treatment, and more importantly, for him to die as a free man. But our best effort turned out to be not good enough. And I'm I'm very, very sad at this moment. And he deserves every right to die as a free man (laughs) with dignity.
0: We are so terribly sorry to hear your distress. Do just take a moment and stay with us. I wonder what you make of what you heard from our China editor, Carrie Gracie, talking about those people who chose to focus on their lives post the Tiananmen Square uh, massacre in 1989 and those who chose to continue to challenge as Liu Xiaobo did. what What does that tell us about him and his character?
9: Yeah, Liu Xiaobo is unique in this regard. After Tiananmen Square Massacre, he had uh, multiple chances of leaving China to come to overseas to live in democracy and freedom, but he rejected these opportunities. Instead, he remained in China, continued his very peaceful effort to change China. He made the most contribution and also made the big biggest sacrifice, including his uh, family, everybody suffered in the past uh, uh, almost past the two three decades his wife and he other family members and uh, at this moment, you know what we can do is to resolve to carry his um spirit forward to continue our work, our fight for freedom and democracy. And I also want to remind the whole world, what kind of government would let this happen? What what kind of government would not allow him to die as a free man? What kind of government would not let even he and his wife? Have a final moment without surveillance. <laughs>
0: okay. Jian Liang, Yang, friend and fellow dissident, friend of Liu Xiaobo, who has died age 61. Thank you very much indeed for joining us live from Washington. Now, the fate of the terminally ill baby Charlie Gard is being decided at the High Court in London today. At its core, it's a heartbreaking story of parents who want their child to be healthy and have a future. But there are complex moral and ethical issues prompted by this case. Charlie Gard has an extremely rare neurodegenerative disorder which has left him with brain damage and suffering from epilepsy. His doctors in London believe there is no further treatment that has any chance of success, but his parents have presented a petition to the court's To allow them to take Charlie to the United States, for which they've raised money. I'm joined now on the line by Professor Dominic Wilkinson, who is Director of Medical Ethics at Oxford University. He's also worked as a doctor in neonatal and pediatric intensive care. Welcome to the program. Uh, Professor Wilkinson what do you make of that the 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 correctness of whether a parent has the right to decide a child's uh, fate or whether it should be doctors and the state
9: well
4: parents are right at the heart of the decisions that are made for seriously ill children uh, in the uk as in in the rest of the world and uh, Parents, together with doctors, make decisions every day about providing treatment and also about deciding that it's time to refocus treatment on a child's comfort when medicine has reached its limits and can no longer cure or even treat a a very sick child. However, there are limits to the decisions that parents can make. Uh, Parents can't refuse medical treatment. That would be certainly Uh, A benefit to a child, a blood transfusion, for example, uh, in a child who will be seriously ill without a blood transfusion. Parents can't refuse that. And likewise, they can't demand medical treatment that actually the health professionals think has no chance of helping the child and in fact would do more harm than good.
0: This notion at the heart of the, the role, the ethical role of a doctor, to do no harm, what is it in this particular case, do you think, that, that makes these parents feel that they know more than the doctor when their child is in pain or in discomfort?
4: Well, these parents uh, spend have spent very large amounts of time at the bedside of their child, um, and doctors, health professionals have very good reason to listen to parents uh, because in most circumstances, parents are right. They, they do know their child very well. Uh, and I, as a professional, uh, I think it, it's always important to listen to what parents are saying. In, the, in this case, one of the, the very sad features of the case is that uh, poor Charlie is paralysed. He can't move. He can't frown he can't cry, he can't wriggle or move if he's in com- discomfort or pain, so that the outside signs that we would normally see in a child uh, in, who's in pain just aren't there. Uh, and that makes it, I think, very uh, difficult for anybody to assess if he's in pain. But those who, like myself, work in intensive care looking after very sick children, we know that the things that we do to keep them alive are not always pleasant and they're not always comfortable and they sometimes cause pain, despite our best efforts to alleviate those symptoms. And if Charlie isn't able to show that discomfort, that may well be because of the severity of his illness, of the the paralysis, but doesn't necessarily reliably tell us that he's not in pain.
0: Professor Dominic Wilkinson of Oxford University, thank you. Thank you and just one headline to bring to you which has a story which has broken while we've been on air china's only nobel peace laureate liu shibao has died he was 61 and had recently been moved from prison to hospital for cancer treatment mr liu was serving an 11-year sentence punishment for his role in writing and circulating an online petition which called for an end to china's one-party state western governments and rights human rights organizations around the world had called on beijing to allow allow Liu Xiaobao to go to overseas for treatment, but those demands were refused. He was a highly respected writer and political thinker who consistently advocated peaceful political reform. And he was one of the main participants in the pro-democracy protests in Tiananmen Square in 1989. You're listening to News NewsHour. This is Razia Iqbal with NewsHour from the BBC World Service. The French President Emmanuel Macron has welcomed the US President, Donald Trump, to Paris with an official ceremony at uh, Les Invalides. President Trump has plenty of troubles back home. He says the mood in the White House is fantastic, despite intense scrutiny of his campaign's alleged dealings with Russia. So what do his supporters make of this? The BBC's Nick Bryant has been to Nebraska, a state that voted for Mr Trump in the 2016 election.
4: He's on for a big ride. Hang in there, cowboy. There we go!
5: In the rollicking ride of the Trump presidency, you often wonder how long he'll stay on the horse. Set
4: a horse? Keep working, keep working. There we go!
5: Here cowboys were wrestling steers in the mud, not a bad metaphor for a presidency that's always locking horns with the media, Congress and international leaders. But rural Nebraska remains Trump country. Did you vote for him? Yes, I did. Are you happy with the job he's doing?
2: You he bet. I think he's doing all right. He has some flaws, but that, like any president, you know, they have their ups and downs. What are his flaws? Um, definitely Twitter. I know, you know, we got think they they to lay off night. the keyboard. He's a good businessman and that's what the country needs. You get the thing... Get the country back out of debt and get a lot of people working. And I think that's what he's doing.
5: On the night that Donald Trump Jr.'s bombshell emails were released, the pigs in the cattle sheds were more agitated than the people. No one we spoke to at this county fair was in the least bit concerned that Team Trump might have been telling porkies about its contacts with Russian figures?
10: Media's taking it out of proportion.
5: But there's email proof now that...
10: Yeah, some, I guess. I don't know. I haven't followed it for a while now because of that. But... Does it worry you? No.
5: I think it's just a farce spun by the left because they lost. Do the allegations of Russian collusion worry you?
2: Well, not particularly. I mean, we've had a lot of allegations over the years. But my question is, why would they? What would be the advantage of one
5: candidate over the other for the Russians? That would be the thing I would be most concerned about. Why? Well, Donald Trump was promising improved relations with Vladimir Putin for a start. Mm, well,
2: wouldn't that be beneficial for all of us, no matter who the candidate was in office?
5: What I always find noticeable about touching down in what are often called the fly of estates is that people here are not glued to their smartphones. They are not following this presidency minute by minute or tweet by tweet, But you do get the feeling that some people are concerned that the president is being distracted, that he is fixated with his problems rather than theirs.
2: Yeah, I'm more focus and more drilling down on the issues that were talked about on the campaign.
5: Josh Moaning, the Republican mayor of Norfolk, the nearby town.
2: What I hear from people is uh, less tweeting and more doing. I think there's kind of a bewilderment about the compulsion to... Tweet about anything and everything, and so I think I think people like to see him focus more on working on some of his campaign promises.
0: That report was from our U.S. correspondent, Nick Bryant. <laughs> Iraq now where video footage is emerging from the city of Mosul of extreme abuse allegedly by Iraqi security forces of people suspected of having links to the Islamic State group. Human Rights Watch says it's received numerous eyewitness accounts of torture and summary executions which the group says is evidence of a growing sense of impunity among Iraqi forces in Mosul. Let's speak to uh, Belkis Villa who is a senior Iraq researcher at Human Rights Watch. She joins me live from Baghdad. Uh, Just tell us what sorts of videos and 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 what do you know about the veracity of them
10: uh, well we've received just in the last 2 days four videos showing extreme beating of men being held by iraqi forces the the iraqi forces are in uniform they are Iraqi military, federal police that are, that are also involved in the battle. And in one video, we see a body thrown off a, a cliff and shot at, and another body also lying at the bottom of this cliff along the, the Tigris River being shot at by, by soldiers. And we've actually been able to geolocate through satellite imagery exactly where, where this occurred, which is a neighborhood just north of Mosul's old city. And the verification, if any, that you've been able to obtain? Yes, yeah, so in this one, one video where we see Iraqi soldiers throwing the body of a, of a live man over a cliff and onto the bank of the Tigris River and then shooting at him as he lands, we were able to geolocate the, the location of that building um, through satellite imagery as well as verify that Iraqi forces have been using that building for the days leading up to to when this video was published two days ago.
0: What, if anything, has the Iraqi government been saying about this?
10: So far, we've seen absolute silence when it comes to not only these videos emerging, but numerous other very serious allegations of abuse in in the battle for Mosul. Instead, all we hear from Baghdad is congratulations to the armed forces for for their victory in this battle. And as a result, I think the forces on the ground feel absolute impunity. And, 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 and as a result, we continue to see these, these torture and, and execu- execution uh, videos and, and photos coming out. And, and from what you know,
0: what can you tell us about whether you think this, is, this goes to the heart of what were anxieties about the sectarian aftermath that we have seen in Iraq before? Is this to do with Shia-Sunni uh, disputes?
10: No, I don't think it is. And that's what sets it apart from previous operations. In the Mosul operation, there has been a very large contingent of Sunni forces, both Sunni tribal forces and Sunni soldiers within the Iraqi uh, um, army system who have been carrying out a lead role in the battle. And, uh, and unfortunately, we've seen these Sunni forces carrying out the same horrific abuses with impunity, saying that they are absolutely justified in punishing those who were linked to ISIS and getting away with it.
0: We will leave it there. Uh, Not a great line, but uh, we're grateful to you. Bilkis Villa, Senior Iraq Researcher at Human Rights Watch, uh, joining us live from Baghdad. Just before you go, to, uh, we're just going to bring you up to date with our story that broke while we've been on air. The Nobel laureate Liu Bao, who was China's most prominent human rights and democracy advocate, has died at the age of 61. He was being treated for terminal liver cancer in a hospital in northeastern China. In the weeks leading up to his death, Mr Liu's case became mired in international controversy. Several Western countries had urged Beijing to... To allow him to leave the country to seek palliative care elsewhere. And that was denied. That brings us to the end of this edition of NewsHour. Thanks very much for your company from me, Razia Iqbal, and the entire NewsHour team. Bye bye. NewsHour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit slash podcasts.